Hey, if you're a workplace coach or work in HR or anyone working with challenging conflict situations at work, we've created a coaching method that any coach can learn. The goal of New Ways for Work Coaching is to help employees or whoever is taking it to learn personal relationship skills for productive relationships. Essentially, it gives employees a chance to learn new skills and to change before big decisions are made about their employment. Sometimes they're just lacking skills and New Ways will teach them. If you'd like to know more about it, we offer our New Ways for Work coaching training two to three times a year. And these trainings are a combination of on-demand, which you can watch 24-7, and Zoom training with Sherilyn Knapp and Bill Eddy on the on-demand portions. You'll find the link for this in the show notes below. Sign up at highconflictinstitute.com forward slash upcoming dash courses or email us at info at highconflictinstitute.com. Welcome to It's All Your Fault on True Story FM, the one and only podcast dedicated to helping you identify and deal with the most challenging human interactions, those with someone who may have a high conflict personality. I'm Megan Hunter, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Eddy. Hi, everybody. We're the co-founders of the High Conflict Institute in San Diego, California. In today's episode, we're going to talk about one of the questions we are asked the most, which is whether to tell someone else, like maybe it might be a judge, uh, human resources, a boss, friends, family members, anyone else, that the person you're dealing with that you're really having a challenge with and you think may have sort of a high conflict personality, um, is it okay to tell someone else about that? Should you tell the judge? Should you tell the HR person? Um, It's a dicey area and it can have a lot of unfavorable results, um, even with the best of intentions. So uh, it'll be a good one today. But first, a couple of notes. If you have a question about high conflict situations or people, send them to podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or on our website at highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast, where you'll also find the show notes and links. And please give us a reader review and tell your friends, colleagues, or family about us, especially if they're dealing with a high conflict situation. We're very grateful. Now let's talk about what to do. Um, should you be a megaphone or not? Bill, we, we get asked this question an awful lot, and it's surprising because most people think it's a really good idea to tell someone else that their significant other or their the person they're divorcing or who, whoever it is in their life that's causing a lot of havoc and chaos, um, telling them they're high conflict or they have a high conflict personality. And this can come after someone reads one of uh, our books or reads goes through our website and reads some articles or, you know, goes on your Psychology Today blog and they, oh, this, you know, this article is amazing. I've, I've learned about uh, you know, my ex-husband, now I can tell the judge that he has narcissistic personality disorder, right? And they think it's a really good idea. So um, we'll talk today, you know, about whether that's true or not. So in legal cases, you know, do you think it's a good idea to tell the judge, the mediator, evaluator, or whoever the professional is, that you think that the other person has a personality disorder is a, or is a high-conflict person, um, but they've never been formally diagnosed? Well, the answer is an emphatic no. 
don't do that. What was that? An emphatic (laughs) no. Okay, just to be clear. (laughs) And that'll blow up in your face. If you think somebody has a personality disorder, then what happens, and, and we especially see this in family law, but this is also true in probate cases. This is true in the workplace, et cetera, where you say, hey, my sister has a personality disorder. And that's not going to help you because they're going, how do you get to diagnose somebody? And if we have everybody diagnosing everybody, um, it's useless information. And I I have to admit that in a family law case about 25 years ago, I submitted a memorandum of points and authorities pointing out how in that case it was a husband, my client was the wife, and how he seemed to have a personality disorder. The judge totally ignored that. At the end of the hearing, he says, and Mr. Reddy, I fail to see the relevance of that. And I said, well, if I'm right, Your Honor, we'll be back in your courtroom every year for some matter that's either frivolous or non-existent. Well, a couple of years later, we'd been back a couple times. The judge says, well, I don't know what this is, but, sir, I'm beginning to agree with Mr. Reddy. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. But, but the lesson I got out of that is that they don't want to hear They don't want to hear about that. What they do want to hear about is what are the concerning patterns of behavior? So it's not a label. Label doesn't help. And unfortunately, there's a lot of information on the Internet today in, you know, one of the jokes almost in a lot of legal cases today is that, yeah, yeah, my client said the other party's a narcissist. Everybody says the other party's a narcissist and that my boss is a narcissist, my neighbor's a narcissist, (laughs) my ex is a narcissist. It's very trendy to be, you know, to label someone else. Exactly. And it's very easy. <laughs> yeah, it is. Costs but, you nothing. But it doesn't mean anything. And it, it hurts your credibility. It's like as if you're saying, well, I'm an expert and the value of the machinery is, you know, X, Y, Z, and you have no experience in doing any of that. So it basically, the answer is no. Um, the judges don't like that. Also, mediators usually don't like that. Evaluators, um, they also frown on that. But there's an alternative, which we can get to at some point. <laughs> kind of leads me to another question. What if, if someone has been formally diagnosed? Now, we're talking about a divorce or child custody or parenting time matter here, right? Um So if you know that this person has a formal diagnosis, then is it okay? Yeah. So in that case, it's totally different because it's out on the table, assuming it's been, you know, public knowledge that it wasn't a confidential document that said that, but that it's out in the open. But that alone still doesn't tell the judge, mediator, evaluator, or yourself um, very much. It just kind of raises a question of, well, what does this mean in this case? And so you still need to explain why it's a specific issue in your case. You have to describe the most concerning patterns of behavior that are associated with that. 
Um, and so there's a wide range. All, all of the personality disorders that we talk about have a really wide range. Some people, it's a disorder. Some may just have some traits. Some may be so severe, they can't work. They can't function in society. And others, it's, it's a, they're a functioning person with these problems and they may do great at their job, but mostly personality disorders are about close relationships and that's where it shows up, the all or nothing thinking, the blaming, etc. So, but there's such a range that you need to say specifically, what are the concerning patterns of behavior, not a psychological label? I also like to think of it from the perspective of the judge who went to law school and didn't go to school to be a psychologist, right? So we're, if you're thinking, you know, I'm going to go in and tell the judge that my ex has borderline personality disorder or is a sociopath, the judge may have some limited information or training um, ab- about that. But at the end of the day, what, what's, what's it matter? Right. If the judge says, oh, OK, well, you're saying this person has borderline personality disorder. What would you like me to do with that? Um, you know, uh, ban them from the planet. It's 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 kind of an interesting dilemma then for the judge. So it's like you said, it's about showing the patterns of behavior that are um, go against good parenting. Right. That's the thing is there's several things to think about is so you show concerning patterns of behavior, but it's related to what you're asking for. So let's say you're asking for uh, supervised parenting for the other parent and you need to say why there's a problem that needs that much uh, intrusion, intervention into the other parent's life. So if they have a substance abuse problem and they've driven drunk or they have a, an anger management problem and they yell and scream a lot, then the impact of that on the child. So you say this happened, this happened, this happened. Um, domestic violence, uh, physical abuse, etc. So you need to talk about that specifically. So let me give you kind of a framework. And I might mention that this framework is involved in two books. One is our book, High Conflict People and Legal Disputes, the second edition. And I believe it's chapter 14. It's 13 or 14. And the other is our book, uh, Splitting, Protecting Yourself While Divorcing Someone with Borderline or Narcissistic Personality Disorder which you can buy without having to diagnose your spouse or ex, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and co-authored with uh, Randy Krager. And in both of those books, I lay out a method that I found the most constructive, and that is come up with the three or four most concerning themes or patterns of behavior that you want to tell the judge about, say, why you think there should be supervised contact of the other parent. So this could be because they're physically abusive, or it could be because they're emotionally abusive, or they have uncontrollable anger, or they're undermining your relationship with the child, or they mislead and lie to professionals, or they have alienating behaviors that lead to resistance and refusal. But you say alienating behaviors of father or of mother, 
And so these are examples of the kind of themes that the cases I've consulted with frequently have. And so you have these headings and you put these, like if you're submitting a document, you put these bold, all caps, underline the heading. And so a judge can see, okay, there's these three or four patterns of concern. And then under each one, you list the three or four most concerning examples of that. So within a couple pages, let's say you do a two-page summary that lays this out, a judge can go, oh, okay, this case is different from a lot of my cases because this case has real clear examples of outrageous um, abusive behavior or or intimidating the child, locking the child in the room, slamming the door on the child's hand, um, all of these kinds of things. But they can get an idea of where does this fit in my caseload? Because a lot of people say that the other party's a jerk. And it's like, well, what level of jerk? That's the <laughs> issue. <laughs> And so you're not going to get supervised parenting unless you have a real concern. Um, you're not going to get limited parenting for the other parent unless there's a real concern. But you also have to support it with those three or four examples. Because if you say, you know, my co-parent is horribly abusive to the child, and then your examples are, well, two months ago, he raised his voice at the child. And, and last month, he, he picked the child up half an hour late. The judge is going to go, oh, okay, that's not a supervised contact case. So that's why you have to really spell it out. And I might add, if someone may or may not have a personality disorder, doesn't necessarily change a whole lot about what happens. I had a case where my client had, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but she had shot herself in the stomach. She was upset, but she said it wasn't a suicide attempt, but there was a parenting dispute that upset her. And then, so she lost custody for a while and she wanted to go back to court to get custody. And while she was, you know, recovering, her therapist diagnosed that she had borderline personality disorder. She got treatment for that. She was on medications for depression. She totally cleaned up her life, really addressed everything. And six months later, she got custody back because Two things. One is she really demonstrated that she really got into recovery and did a good job. And the other is the other party was a liar. And he lied about enough things that we pointed out to the judge. And the judge says, I've got two people with problems. One's working on their problems and the other isn't. So if mom keeps this up, she can have the child back again. And so a diagnosis doesn't mean you never see the child again. It's that kind of issue. What about telling a, a therapist um, or your, even your own lawyer um, in a, let's say, in a family case? Well, those are two quite different professionals around this issue. So your therapist, feel free. Therapists are used to talking about this stuff. They may be able to explain why the person may or may not have these characteristics. They should be careful not to say, here's my diagnosis of your co-parent, because they haven't met that person. But 
you should be able to talk pretty openly with with them about that. With the lawyer, it's it's mixed because some lawyers make the presumption that if one party has a problem, the other party probably has an equal problem. So if you say, you know, my husband's a narcissist, the lawyer's going to go, okay, then you're probably a narcissist too. Um, or maybe you're a borderline or something like that. So there's a chance they're going to look negatively at you if you use these terms. On the other hand, it is kind confidential. So you could say, I have concerns about the patterns of behavior. They seem to fit someone with a personality disorder from what I've read on the internet. The big thing to discuss with a lawyer about a personality disorder in a legal case is that if somebody has a personality disorder, they're very unlikely to change. And a lot of judges just figure, I'm going to give the person a lecture, and then they'll change. They'll stop doing that thing that got them into trouble. Well, we learned about 40, 50 years ago that that doesn't work with addictions. Because uh, the judge would say, you know, sir, can you look me in the eye and promise me you'll never drive drunk again? And the guy says, yes, Your Honor, I will never drive drunk again. I swear, I promise, never, ever, ever again. Then on the way home, they have a drink. Next thing you know, they're drunk and they drive and they kill somebody because that's part of their problem is they don't have that kind of control. So courts learned long ago, you have to order people into treatment if you really want to keep them clean and sober and not driving drunk. And so in many ways, that's the same thing here. In family law cases, judges sometimes say, well, given the situation, I would give one person primary custody and the other would have very limited contact. But I'm sure you'll stop doing the things you were doing before, so I'm going to give you a 50-50 plan. Well, I find that really frustrating because if there's a big problem that one has and the other's pretty reasonable, in about half of cases, one's reasonable and one's got one of these personality issues, in, in that kind of case, that's not the what you want to order. But there's this kind of belief that people, you know, people are good people, people can change. Well, it's not a question of good, just like someone, you know, Betty Ford was an alcoholic and a, and a pill addict, and she was a very good person, but she also had an addiction. And that's the problem with personality disorders. People can be good people, but they have behavior, especially conflict behavior, that may be out of control and needs to be restrained. And that's one thing we count on the courts to do. So you have a discussion like that with your lawyer. Um, say, these are the reasons why I think they're not going to change. I think they have a personality disorder. I can't say for sure because I'm your client and I'm not a therapist is what they should say. But you know, you can raise this concern that the other person's not going to change and the court needs to know that. And I can give you a lot of examples of why that's the case. So in a family case, that's that's uh, I mean, that's a lot of good information there. And, you know, it led me to think about, you know, someone who's not divorced, but they're in marital counseling and they go to a therapist. And, you know, I hear people saying I, I would, you know, my my 
my husband is, uh, you know, has a personality disorder or has a high conflict personality. They say this to their therapist. To me, it seems to be starting off on a, you know, a pretty rotten foot. So is it a good idea to tell your therapist or, you know, any marital counselor or, you know, any coaching or anything like that? I think if if you can meet separately with them and a good marital or couples counselor will give a chance to meet separately, especially know if there's domestic violence and those issues. And you can say, I, you know, I don't know for sure, but I'm concerned about these patterns of behavior. And, and I understand that, you know, this is probably pointless to do couples therapy if the person is not capable of changing anything. And so I just want to give you a heads up. I'm concerned about that. And that way, the therapists will be paying attention without feeling like you've jumped to a conclusion. And some therapists have told clients, consultation clients of mine, like a year earlier before I was involved, have told them that your couple's therapy is pointless because the other person can't change and they've got these other bigger problems. Um, it's rare, but sometimes they're told that. And, and frankly, I think that's helpful to know other, other than spending a year trying to change yourself because the other person's not engaged in an effort to change. Um, so I think privately, you could say you have concerns about that, but it's more important to say the pattern of behavior. So now let's go into the role of the professional. Let's say you're the judge, you're the lawyer, you're the therapist, um, and you have a client come or you know litigant come in and say, you know, my so-and-so has a high conflict personality. They have, you know, antisocial personality disorder. The big but, the big however, is to be, be very cautious about someone saying this to you because often it, uh, you know, someone who with a true high conflict personality, as we both know, doesn't know that they do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so they think it's the other person. And so the professionals often get it backwards um, or don't know what to believe or who to believe. And, you know, that can be a real dilemma. Number one, if you just believe someone right out of the out, out of the gate without investigating. And, and we've both heard of cases like this where, uh, you know, maybe in a family court case, a therapist believes one client that their ex is you know, a sociopath or, or you know, a narcissist or, or something, and they really can get the case backwards and and almost in a way harm harm a case. Um, do, do you see that very often or hear that very often, Bill? A lot. That definitely high conflict cases have that's a common concern, and the way to really address that is to have three theories of the high conflict case. Most high conflict cases have one party saying the other is acting very badly, you know, uh, domestic violence, substance abuse, child abuse, alienation, false allegations, those kinds of things. And so you've got to consider the possibility that that's true. You also have to consider the possibility it's not true at all. And the person saying that has a high conflict personality. And one of the primary characteristics of that is a preoccupation with blaming others. And they can be persuasive blamers because they've had a lot of practice at that. And so you have to consider that possibility. And that's where, you know, you find out that people get locked up 
for years that may not be guilty of anything. And yet they persuaded other people that they were. And that's rare in family law cases. You don't get locked up for years. But in criminal cases, there are people who want to put business partners, neighbors, et cetera, in jail by making up stuff. So it's it's not out of the question. So there's three theories. The third theory is that both people have contributed to the problem. Both people may be abusive in their words and behavior. So I believe that any any professional in the legal field especially needs to to be aware of these three possibilities and consider them. Otherwise, it's what we call confirmation bias. If you have a theory, well, you know, the husband must be right, the wife's done these terrible things, that's confirmation bias. And if you don't consider the other way around, then you're at risk of proving to yourself that you were right, because you kind of spin all the information in favor of that. And that's one thing I get as a high conflict consultant is cases where that's happened and how to try to get the court's attention to that it's actually completely the other way around, sometimes with success, sometimes without success. But this is legal examples. So, you know, let's look at, say, workplace examples. So you're doing a lot of workplace training and consultation. In the workplace, do you think this is a concern or that it's safe to say someone's got a personality disorder or high conflict personality? It's kind of interesting. And I think it's been evolving the last few years, but I'd say bottom line, it's not a good idea <laughs> to uh-huh. go go to HR or to your boss and say so-and-so has a, a personality disorder. Um, number one, like you said earlier, you don't know. You're not a clinician. You can't diagnose. Um, and you just you really got to f- have to focus on on those those patterns of behavior and, and kind of dem- you know getting those laid out. But I remember years ago, maybe 12, 15 years ago, when we first started HCI, I talked to a a large utilities company to their HR department, and they just wanted to spend an hour with me to see what kind of information we have, like what kind of training we give. And uh, so I talked about these five personality disorders, (laughs) Mm -hmm. as we often do in our trainings, and they shut down very quickly. And I uh, was a little taken aback because, you know, usually the information is so readily accepted and people are very interested in it. But this group really shut it down. So I, I asked later, you know, what, what what was the reason behind that? And they, they said, look, we just, you know, we don't need to know this type, type of information. And once this type of uh, information gets out, then employees might start using it to get, you know, disability and all different kinds of things. So, um they just didn't want to talk about it. I, I think in general, uh, you know, now that we're 15 years on, there's a lot more information for human resources departments and there's, you know, a lot of, a lot more sophistication, but still not a good idea. It's more about just understanding what the behaviors are that are, you know, contrary to competitive workplace um, and an efficient workplace and anything that's outside of the alignment of the company's mission and goals. You know, those things have to be addressed. So uh, probably not a great idea to talk about HCPs and personality disorders <laughs> at work. Good to know and good for people to know. Let me let me add a little nugget here. And that is I did training for Social Security judges 
um, back in the Washington, D.C. area several years ago. And I think over three different trainings, they had about 300 judges each. There's about 900 Social Security um, administrative law judges. People don't realize that's the largest law firm probably in the world. Interesting. (laughs) But one of the things they emphasized then was personality disorder doesn't decide any of their cases. It's the behavior. And does the person have impaired behavior that would lead to disability, not simply a diagnosis. With that said, I've also spoken with employment lawyers and done trainings in Canada where they are starting to say that that could be considered a disability. So it really depends on where you are. But even so, I think you're right. You don't want to be the person that's deciding that an employee or a manager has this problem, you want to get the professionals to do that for you. Yeah, good idea. So kind of wrapping this up, the the last question, and maybe it'll be the most interesting to, to the majority of our listeners is, what if you have a family member or a neighbor or a friend, you know, who's really displaying some uh, less than stellar behaviors, and you you think, you know, that they have this disorder? Now, what comes to mind is is one particular friend who a uh, family friend who is getting a divorce and they decided it would be a great idea to send i don't know 15 or 16 copies of your book splitting <laughs> protecting yourself while divorcing someone with borderline or, or narcissistic personality disorder to all of their soon to be exes family members just so that family members would understand what he was dealing with <laughs> with their own daughter. Right? How did that go? <laughs> uh, I, you know, and I, I told the guy, "Don't do it. It won't end well for you." Right? And um, he went ahead and did it, and it 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 backfired completely. Backfired. Yeah. So I, you know, um, I think in in the majority of of cases, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I guess it's a little bit different with families. Um, if something is is pretty serious, then it's family that does need to take care of it. So how how is that handled? The best thing is if someone's concerned about a friend or family member is get a consultation with a therapist and say, here's my concern. You know, what do you think's going on here? What should I do? And the therapist can usually help with saying that's going to backfire or here's some things you could do. Where it gets to the point that family and friends may need to do an intervention with somebody, then I think we're going to start seeing that in the coming years, like developed in the substance abuse field. And that is family friends get together and say, look, we can't, we can't continue to support you or have you living for free here or whatever it is, given how many things you've broken, how many jobs you've quit, how many, uh, people you've gotten into legal trouble, all of that. So we're going to, you know, withhold our support unless you go into some kind of treatment. And there actually are starting to be treatment programs for personality disorders, primarily borderline personality disorder, which often overlaps with eating disorders, substance abuse, etc. So in that kind of setting, 
it would be something that people may talk about, but you want to have a professional lead that kind of intervention and have the professional give guidance to the family. And so talk to someone who's got experience with this. So generally, yeah, you don't want to say it, but discuss it openly with a therapist to get some tips. So let me give you an example with friends and family. Um, I consulted with uh, three women, adult women, who realized at one point from the internet that their mother probably had borderline personality disorder. So they got together at one of the holidays and met with mom and said, hey, mom, we figured out what your problem is. You have borderline personality disorder. Well, mom said, get out of my house. And dad agreed, if mom says get out of the house, you need to get out of the house. And mom said, I don't ever want to hear that again. I don't want to talk to you. Leave. You know, I'm not going to ever talk to you again, which helps demonstrate some of the impulsive all or nothing thinking of that personality. <laughs> sure. But um, that's not what they had expected or what they wanted. So they asked me for a consultation and said, how can we how can we recover from this? And I said, well, first of all, you need to admit that you don't know what's happening and that you're not going to bring that issue up again. Then look to have a light relationship with your mother. You live in different cities. You don't have to, you know, change her and you're not going to change her. So, you know, write notes and cards from time to time, share experiences and realize you're not going to have a deep relationship with your mother, that that's just not in the cards, that she's not open to that. But you can maintain a cordial relationship. And they they were sad that their father supported the mother against them rather than supporting them against the mother. But a lot of times people just aren't open to this. So you may just have to grieve and heal that in your own therapy, that here's somebody that's not likely to change. And clearly that that one blew up. So if they had said, Mom, we think, you know, you're under stress, it might help to get some counseling. And Mom said, oh, okay, I'll do that. That's a different story. But if Mom says, no, I have no interest in that, then leave it alone and have have a level of relationship that you can have that's positive and realize you're going to have to get some of those needs met from other people because you're not going to get it from a family member with a personality disorder who's not open to any change or reflection. Right. And for, you know, if if you're listening to this and you have, you know, a family member who, you know, maybe having some real struggles like this, it's it's just never a good idea to say to them, you know, you're high conflict or you're you're a borderline, you're a narcissist, you're a sociopath. It just never goes well, um, particularly when you're in, you know, maybe engaged in a battle with them <laughs> and they're very upset or they're in a rage. It's, it's just not the time. In, in those moments, it's about calming, calming the situation down, um, making sure everybody's okay and other things can be talked about later, but it's still not a good idea to tell someone they have a personality disorder. And if you're listening to this and you are, you know, don't have the means to to seek a therapist, you know, or, or get counseling, um, you know, just 
do some reading, uh, do some journaling, talk to some uh, some people who might be able to give you some really um, objective um, advice and information and um, and just, you know, make sure you take care of yourself. So with that, we'll wrap it up. I think uh, in summary, would you agree, Bill? It's just not usually a very good idea to tell anyone that they have, <laughs> that they themselves have a personality disorder, and it's not a good idea to go spread it around elsewhere either. Yes, absolutely. That's that's the lesson, I think, from today's episode. And just know that you can read about this. We're going to talk about this, but we're always talking in general terms for background knowledge. We're not encouraging you to go out and deliver this news to anybody. So keep it to yourself, a private working theory, if you even have a theory. That's what, what we've That's both key. concluded. Yes. <laughs> That's the key. Next week, we are going to be joined by a very special guest, Amanda Ripley. She is a New York Times bestselling author, an investigative journalist, and host of the Slate podcast, How To. She has spent her career really trying to make sense of complicated human mysteries, including the field of high conflict. In fact, she's the author of a book called High Conflict, of which we think is a really great name, obviously. So uh, don't miss this episode. She and Bill will have a really fantastic conversation about the meaning of high conflict and uh, macro and micro versions of high conflict and everything in between. So you won't want to miss it. Send your questions to podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or submit them to highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast. Tell your friends about us, and we'd be very grateful if you'd leave a review wherever you listen to us. And until next week, have a great one and keep learning about high conflict situations so you can manage it and influence it in your world. Until then, keep striving toward peace. It's All Your Fault is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Wolf Samuels, John Coggins, and Ziv Moran. Find the show, show notes, and transcripts at truestory.fm or highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Our show.